This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast, Mikkel Burley, or as you prefer, Mick. Um, welcome. Thank you for coming on and taking the time. And uh, I'm going to dive straight into these questions. And for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, um, can we begin with this question, Mick? Tell us about some of your, your main professional interests and what drove you to them. Right. Well, well, thank you very much for having me on, uh, Matthew. It's a, it's a pleasure to uh, be speaking with you. And it's, it's great to have this opportunity to, to talk about some of the ideas um, that I've uh, been working on and, uh, and especially the, uh, the, the rebirth theme that, uh, that you contacted me about. Um, with regard to my professional interests, um, I, I work primarily in the philosophy of religion, uh, broadly construed, um, and by broadly construed, I mean that I endeavour to uh, broaden out the the range of uh, of topics and themes that are covered by uh, the philosophy of religion. I have a, a some background in the study of uh, South Asian religions or religions that are, originate in South Asia, including uh, Hindu traditions and uh, and Buddhist uh, traditions, as well as uh, Jain and to some extent uh, uh, Sikh traditions. Um, and I, I endeavour to bring those interests into my study of uh, philosophy of religion, and as it happens, um, those those sorts of uh, religious traditions have tended to be somewhat neglected by uh, mainstream mm. philosophy of religion as it's uh, pursued in Western countries. Um, right. Not not only in uh, the analytic philosophical tradition, but uh, but also the continental uh, philosophical tradition as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's part of my part of my academic pursuit really is is uh, uh, studying philosophy of religion in a way that tries to broaden out its scope, both uh, in terms of subject matter and also methodologically. Okay, okay, that's interesting. So, what about the personal level? Because often people that come to study something like Buddhism or Hinduism, it often begins with a personal investment in those traditions to some degree. Is that something that, that you share or is your interest entirely academic? It, it is something to, that I share to, to some extent. Um, when I first became interested in uh, philosophy and uh, religious issues back in my teenage years in the, in the 1980s, um, I never really made a, a strong distinction uh, between so-called Western and uh, and so-called uh, Eastern or Asian uh, philosophies, or indeed other philosophies around the world, I saw it all as one um, big area of interest for me. And so when I went into studying philosophy more academically, I still wasn't really making a strong distinction there. Um, 
and at the per- on the personal level, I I have uh, long had an interest in, I suppose, different areas of different ways of uh, inquiring into the the whole purpose of it all, and uh, and into one's self and uh, what the the various possibilities are for uh, living a, a fulfilling life. Um, and the study of philosophy and the study of religion and the study of both of those together through um, through the di- uh, subdiscipline of uh, philosophy of religion uh, struck me as a as a useful way of um, uh, pursuing that that form of inquiry uh, on the intellectual level. Uh, but I've also had um, I suppose if we if we're going to talk in terms of the personal and the and the academic, then on the personal level, I've I've pursued. Uh, certain forms of yogic practice and meditation um, uh, in my own life as a as a sort of spiritual discipline as well. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so what is the philosophy of religion exactly, and and how, uh, if at all, does it differ from your run of the mill philosophy? Well, um, philosophy of religion is a, a branch of philosophy. Um, it doesn't really differ from. Uh, other forms of philosophy in terms of methodology. It's more with regard to the the subject matter. So, as the as the name suggests, philosophy of religion inquires philosophically into issues, questions concerning religious matters. Um, but we might want to distinguish between what philosophy of religion is uh, within uh, much contemporary uh, philosophical. Um, in, in philosophical institutions or in academic uh, departments and so on, on the one hand, and what and what philosophy of religion could be or 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 could uh, potentially uh, promise to be, because um, as it happens, the the way that philosophy of religion has been pursued over, I suppose since the roughly since the mid twentieth century, um, it's been rather narrow in in focus, and this has been picked up on in recent years and and over the last couple of decades. In fact, uh, a lot of uh, philosophers of religion have been raising complaints about the the narrowness of their own subdiscipline and and trying to explore ways of of broadening it out. And I, I see my my own uh, pursuits as being sort of part of that overall endeavour. Um, so, philosophy of religion, as it is, or has as it has been. It tend to be tended to be quite uh, focused on what gets called um, uh, theism. So uh, that's uh, that's the term that's often used to refer to conceptions of of God and uh, beliefs about God, doctrines concerning God, and some of the typical questions that have been asked within the context of philosophy of religion have been to do with whether there are good arguments for the existence of God and whether the um, attributes uh, traditionally ascribed to God are uh, coherent or internally um, internally coherent or jointly um, compatible and so on. And, and so there's been an implicit and sometimes uh, very explicit focus on Christian themes. And even when it's not Christian themes, it's it's theism in uh, in a sense that is pretty closely related to uh, the Abrahamic uh, religious traditions right. uh, more generally. So um, uh, in over recent years, re- uh, last couple of decades, an increasing number of, of people have been noting that um, there is a lot more to religion than uh, either Christianity or theism. And the problem with with, with theism, this 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 whole notion, is that it's it's um, 
it, it's a highly abstract uh, conception and, uh, and it's often difficult to discern much connection between uh, the kinds of philosophical questions that are raised in relation to theism on the one hand and people's actual uh, religious lives in all their messiness and complexity on the other. Um, so philosophy of religion as it could be or as it promises to be is something far more broad ranging, which would inquire into religion in all its uh, multiple dimensions, um, not merely the doctrinal or the belief uh, centered uh, aspects, but um, but also more to do with practice, uh, embodied disciplines and uh, ethical commitments and emotional um, aspects of, of religiosity and uh, ritual and so on. Um, and also a broader range of, of religious traditions, obviously, so uh, extending beyond the uh, Abrahamic or uh, particularly Christian focus to looking at not only uh, Asian traditions or traditions that originated in Asia, but um, but also uh, indigenous religious traditions and, uh, and, and uh, others around the world. So you've obviously been exploring this kind of territory yourself, and you've taken along a companion with you, from what I can tell, um, a rather consistent companion, who, who is the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his thought? Uh, obviously, it's a very rich, complex topic, but perhaps you could give us a very brief introduction and tell us why, or give us some short insight into why his thought is so important philosophically, and what impact his ideas have had on the field of religious studies and in particular the philosophy of religion. Yes, certainly. Um, yes, it, 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 I like the way you put it. That uh, the Wittgenstein has been a sort of companion of mine. He's, he's, he's been a he's been a significant inspiration in my uh, philosophical development. N not not always, you know. It's uh, it's, it's probably in the last. Um, uh, 10 to 12 years or so that uh, that uh, Wittgenstein's work has become an increasing uh, influence upon my methods and my approach to, to philosophy. And also um, another philosopher who himself was um, profoundly inspired by Wittgenstein, and that's uh, somebody by the name of D.Z. Phillips, um, who is not especially well known outside the, the area of philosophy of religion, but, um, but uh, during his lifetime, um, um, uh, DZ Phillips lived from uh, 1934 to uh, 2006. Uh, during his um, his career, that was I suppose from the 1960s through till through to his death in 2006, he was a, a major figure within philosophy of religion and a great uh, provocation to uh, to other philosophers who tended not to be so favourable to ideas from Wittgenstein. But I, I found uh, DZ Phillips' work to be um, to be extremely influential and inspiring for my own work. But with with regard to um, Wittgenstein himself, well. He's generally acknowledged to be uh, one of, if not the most uh, innovative and influential philosophers of the 20th century. And yet, ironically, within um, contemporary uh, current uh, philosophy departments, he's often seen as something of, uh, well, a philosopher that's of historical interest, but whose ideas uh, don't bear a great deal of relevance to the, the current issues. But I think that's a, a, a tremendous mistake um, because his, his ideas have, uh, have never been more relevant than they are today. They've always uh, been relevant since he was he was working on them. Um, he 
his career, his philosophical career is often divided into uh, two main stages. Um, so people often talk in terms of the early Wittgenstein and the late or later Wittgenstein. Um, there are arguments that continue to rage about whether that's a, uh, an accurate or a useful distinction to make. Some people claim that there's uh, an immense amount of continuity in his uh, philosophical thinking over the whole course of his career. Others uh, suggest that the, it may be more accurate to divide in, divide up his career into further stages and talking in terms of perhaps a third Wittgenstein or a middle Wittgenstein and so on. Um, I, I don't get uh, particularly embroiled in, in those discussions. I think that uh, some interesting ideas come out of Wittgenstein's work at uh, different stages of his career, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in his work from I suppose the the late 1920s uh, and through the 1930s onwards. Prior to that, um, he he published a book called the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus. Uh, it was first published in German in 1921. Came out in an English translation in 1922, and uh, and that was it's a highly technical work of uh, of philosophy, um, very strong um, on philosophical logic. And there's a, there's a whole conception of, um, of meaning and the philosophy of language embedded within that, that book. And it's rather difficult to interpret, to say the least. And there's a lot of uh, interpretive work that continues to be done on trying to figure out exactly what Wittgenstein is up to in uh, what's known uh, for short as the, as the Tractatus. Um, Interestingly, in Wittgenstein's later uh, work, from especially from the 1930s onwards, he saw himself as largely responding to his his own earlier ideas and responding in a in a highly critical way. And so we we shouldn't be surprised that people see uh, Wittgenstein as being his work as being divided into two uh, phases because um, he was perhaps his his own harshest critic, um, and so he was uh, placing his his later thoughts. Uh, to a large extent, in opposition to to his earlier, and I I feel philosophically far more sympathetic to the the later work. So it's that that I I tend to focus on. Um, is it is it worth me saying something about some of the key ideas from that that later work? Yeah, I think it would be useful to tell us something about the the key ideas that you draw on in your own work. Yes, yes, certainly. And, and also you, you were asking about uh, Wittgenstein's sort of relevance to and influence upon uh, the field of religious studies um, yeah. more generally. And, and these, these two uh, uh, topics go together quite well, because I think the ways in which he has been influential upon religious studies are also uh, the ways in which he's been influential in my own work. Mm -hmm. um, so some of the key ideas, I think I'd, I'd pick out three main ones. Um, one is a certain approach to the meaning of words or concepts, which um, can be closely tied to the uh, the term family resemblances. Uh, that's the that's the term that, that Wittgenstein himself used in a couple of places, and which others have, have picked up on. So often, when philosophers or indeed um, other scholars endeavour to investigate the the meaning of a word or a concept, they will be drawn towards trying to find a uh, a fairly strict definition, defining their terms. They, they see that as uh, as extremely important, and and in some ways it is it is important. It's important to know what we're talking about and what we mean by terms. But but it can also be uh, something of a 
of a distraction and um, and and a, and a difficulty if we think of definitions in terms of uh, trying to find the uh, what philosophers might call the uh, the individually necessary and jointly sufficient conditions for the application of the word. So some um, either single property or set of properties that uh, in some way attach to the word and which um, need to be. Uh, in place in order for that word to be properly ascribed to some phenomenon or object or or whatever it is. Um, now, what Wittgenstein did um, was to to think about words in somewhat different ways, and and so he took the the word game as his uh, paradigm example in his uh, his later book that uh, that's known as the Philosophical in- Investigations, um, and so he. He said, "Well, you know, what what would it mean to to try to define the word game? Um, if we look at the the variety of ways in which the term game is used, we see a we see a large number of of different types. So we see things like um, uh, maybe board games, word games, ball games, athletic games, and so on. And it just isn't obvious that there's um, that there's either one single." property, one single factor, or a whole cluster of them that, uh, that all these things that we call games um, have in common. Uh, but what they do seem to have in common are certain overlaps, certain family resemblances between them. So not a single essence, but rather we might see that might perceive it in terms of something like Venn diagrams. This is what this wasn't Wittgenstein's uh, uh, image, but um, but others have, have used this. So sort of overlapping uh, spheres of, of, of the usage of the term game. Um, and so by analogy with the the sorts of features that the members of a natural family may have in common with one another, it's not as though everyone within the family has exactly the same nose or the same eyes or the same color of hair and so on. But um, but there are overlapping similarities. And, and Wittgenstein thought that this was a useful way of, uh, of thinking about the different ways in which words and concepts are um, are used. And uh, scholars of religion have, have picked up on this. It was from quite early on. The Philosophical Investigations was uh, first published in 1953, which was, in fact was a couple of years after Wittgenstein died. He, he didn't uh, publish very much at all during his lifetime. He was uh, very busy sort of writing notes, uh, keeping notes, but he was such a perfectionist that he, uh, he very rarely brought anything to a standard where he was happy to publish it. But he gave um, his, literary exec- his literary executors the right to publish what they wanted uh, from his work subsequent to his death. And the Philosophical Investigations was the the, the main book um, that was made out of the the notes that he was compiling. Um, And and so when that was published in 1953, it was extremely uh, influential. It was much awaited by the sort of philosophical community and uh, other communities in academia as well. And some scholars of religion picked up on the notion of family resemblances and uh, and thought, well, this might be a useful way of thinking about the very concept of religion, this this subject that that scholars of religion are so interested in. And rather than thinking of um, religion as having a strict definition in terms of uh, 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 necessary and sufficient conditions, it might be more helpful to think of uh, religion as a family resemblance concept. So there being multiple different uh, uses, applications of the term religion, but no single essence in common across them. 
Uh, so that's one way in which um, the, the Wittgenstein's ideas have been influential in religion, and it's not um, in the study of religion, and it's not only the concepts of religion, but other concepts too. So, um, in in some studies recently of, uh, in, in fact, uh, of religions including Buddhism and also Hinduism, uh, it's been seen as as helpful to to think in terms of the family resemblances between the different traditions of these uh, of these uh, large sort of complex religions, rather than thinking that they must have some essence uh, in common uh, with one another. And I, I don't know whether you or, or maybe the listeners might um, might see some or or might hear some sort of uh, affinity there between some ideas within Buddhism itself, the the notion of uh, there being. Uh, no strict essence to either a person or perhaps um, phenomena more generally, and um, and so and if if one were to see an affinity there, then one wouldn't be the first to do so because others uh, uh, scholars of Wittgenstein have drawn such analogies themselves. So can we say then that this the thought of Wittgenstein has been a great help in disrupting this sort of ongoing and traditional search for some kind of essential religious form? Yes, we, we certainly could say that. And um, and the, the way that uh, Wittgenstein's notion of family resemblances is sometimes encapsulated is in terms of the, the by means of the term anti-essentialism. Um, uh, we, we could talk of a uh, an anti-essentialist sort of principle or an anti-essentialist tendency within Wittgenstein's thinking. And, and that uh, that meshes very neatly with um, with a lot of the the thinking in contemporary religious studies. Maybe not quite so much uh, within a lot of uh, analytic philosophy these days. There's there's still a lot of search for um, strict definitions and, uh, and and theories that are are fairly broad ranging uh, within analytic philosophy. But um, but within religious studies more generally, there's uh, there's there are, there's strong uh, tendency towards um, a sort of anti-essentialism. Right, sort of endeavouring to look at the broad complexities rather than uh, assuming that um, any kind of phenomenon, whether it be religious or or other, uh, be easily readily pin downable to um, to some single essence. Mm -hmm. So this, I mean, this as an idea has a sort of a pretty clear application for practitioners of, of Buddhism and Hinduism, which is it, it disrupts the idea of either a one true religion or there being a sort of its essence that combines them all in a very, very strict sense. Mm -hmm. um, what other implications do you see Wittgenstein's uh, thought having perhaps or making available for, let's say, more serious or or more open-minded spiritual practitioners of Buddhism and Hinduism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I was going to going to mention a few of the the, the key ideas from Wittgenstein. And um, right, I jumped ahead. Yeah. No, 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 no. That, that's that's fine. I mean, I, I so far I've I've only really talked about this notion of family resemblances, but um, others um, that that uh, some people may have may have come across are. Well, we, the notion of forms of life, um, which is often closely connected with uh, another sort of buzzword, I suppose, from Wittgenstein, which is uh, language games. So I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in, in a moment. And the, the third one that I would, I would note is um, somewhat difficult to, to capture concisely, but um, it's to do with, uh, I suppose, endeavouring to move away from the assumption that in 
various practices that human beings engage in. But if we're, we're thinking more in terms of uh, the study of religion, then particularly religious practices um, and perhaps ritual practices specifically, um, a, a sort of endeavor to move away from the assumption that those practices must somehow be undergirded by or based upon um, something intellectual, something like a, a belief or perhaps even a more worked out theory. Um, and, and Wittgenstein talked sometimes in terms of instinctive uh, reactions to, to things and to the world um, as being expressed through, manifested through um, religious practices. So I, I'll, I'll endeavor to elaborate on that a little bit in a moment. I'll, I'll just say something about the, the notion of uh, a form of life or forms, forms of life and how that might be relevant to the, the study of religion or how it is relevant. Um, Interestingly, there are there are some close uh, sort of connections between Wittgenstein's ways of thinking in philosophy, his methods of, of going about philosophy on the one hand, and and certain uh, ways of thinking and methods of approaching anthropology and the study of culture uh, on the other, and and this has been noted and recognized by many uh, anthropologists. Um, uh, one name that comes to mind, especially, is is Clifford Geertz. Uh, who uh, became well known for uh, relating eth ethnographic study to the the idea of thick description. Now, the idea of thick description is not derived from Wittgenstein directly. It's it's actually derived from a different another philosopher called Gilbert Ryle. Um, but uh, Clifford Geertz made it made something of it himself, and he, as I say, he he connected it closely with ethnographic uh, study, ethnographic inquiry. So, um, endeavouring to make sense of uh, a culture in all its ramified forms. But the, the broader theme there is um, what we could call contextualization. The idea that in order to understand um, whether it be words, concepts, phrases, different forms of language that we use uh, and different forms of behavior that we engage in, one needs to contextualize them. And this is something that anthropologists uh, specialize in. They look at uh, trying to contextualize uh, forms of language and forms of behavior within cultures more broadly. And there's a strong affinity with uh, Wittgenstein's approach to um, the study of language there as well. So we, we shouldn't um, find it uh, unusual or surprising that, uh, that Wittgenstein has been quite influential upon uh, anthropological Inquiry as well as uh, as well as philosophy. Indeed, in some ways, um, his I think his influence outside philosophy has been more long-lasting than it has in philosophy. Um, but th this relates to the the notion of forms of life. So the idea here is that um, if if there's a, a particular form of language, a form of words that we're interested in that maybe puzzles us, it might even be certain things that we ourselves say. Um, then, rather than abstracting from the the everyday lived contexts in which the words, concepts, uh, phrases, forms of language are used, one ought to precisely look towards their, their um, the way that they are used and applied within uh, lived contexts. And, and so Wittgenstein used the, the term language game not to imply that, um, that the use of language is somehow trivial or, or merely like playing a game, but rather to emphasize, as Wittgenstein put it, that, um, that, that language is part of an activity. 
and we use, we make use of language in practical contexts. And if we're going to understand what uh, what the language means, then we need to look to the very contexts in which um, that sort of language, those sorts of concepts, those uh, precise forms of words are indeed used. Um, and in the study of religion, this, this carries over. So uh, if uh, religion can often throw up uh, particular phrases, forms of words uh, that are very puzzling to us, it might be, even be very puzzling to the people who use them. And if we're interested in trying to discover what those mean, then it would be a mistake um, on a Wittgensteinian approach to abstract them from the context in which they are ordinar ordinarily used, but rather to um, to examine them within those contexts. So within the forms of life uh, that give meaning to them, that give them the meaning that they have. One of the um, one of the phrases that Wittgenstein uses in the philosophical investigations is in referring to his own approach. He says what we do, and there he's referring to what we uh, philosophers who, who, who take the kinds of methods that he's uh, promoting seriously. What we do is to bring words back from their metaphysical to their everyday use. And he didn't have anything uh, specifically, any specific negative attitude towards metaphysics generally. But what he means by metaphysics in that particular context is the tendency that philosophers have to assume that you can pluck um, a word or a concept out of its ordinary environment of use. And, and that word will somehow uh, remain, uh, well, or will, what will remain attached to it is the meaning that it has. And one can sort of examine it in, um, in some rarefied uh, abstract environment and, and get to the bottom of, of what the word means. But um, Wittgenstein was, uh, was keen on uh, re retaining the embeddedness of the, of the forms of language that we use within the everyday contexts. Of, of its use. And that, that, that idea has been very appealing to, uh, to scholars of religion um, in various fields. So that's one idea. Um, and then uh, I, I could say a little bit more about the, uh, what I referred to as the notion of instinctive uh, reactions uh, that, yeah. I, that I alluded to. Because um, this, this idea becomes particularly prominent in another of Wittgenstein's works, which I haven't referred to directly yet. Um, and it's it's a work that's especially useful and interesting for uh, scholars of religion, and again also for um, anthropologists, because it is a a response to a particular anthropological work. It's it's um, what what what's become known as Wittgenstein's remarks on Fraser's Golden Bough, and the the Golden Bough uh, was a work by Sir James Fraser that was published in multiple volumes, I think 12 volumes in total, uh, that were published between 1890 and 1915, and then came out in a, in a single volume abridged edition in, uh, 1922. And Wittgenstein was reading, uh, uh passages from this, this great pioneering work of anthropology in the first in the early 1930s, and then he returned to it later on. And he just scribbled down, he sort of jotted, jotted down some notes in response to his reading of this. And uh, they weren't published in his lifetime, but uh, but subsequent to his, his death, they were sort of compiled together and, and published as a, a fairly short work uh, called The Remarks on, on Fraser's Golden Bough. Um, 
and it, it would take a rather a long time to to go into all the sort of details of uh, the Golden Bough itself, which is, a, as I say, a multi-volume work, and also uh, the, the various things that Wittgenstein said in response to it. But uh, but among those, the responses that Wittgenstein had was um, uh, a particular objection to James Fraser's tendency to, to search for um, explanations of ritual practices that involved um, looking for a, some sort of instrumental belief. So a belief that the ritual would achieve some practical result. Um, and this has been a very common tendency among, uh, I suppose, within anthropology quite generally and and elsewhere to, to look at ritual practices and think, well, why do people do that? Um, and assume that there must be some sort of instrumentally directed belief, by which I mean a belief that uh, is directed towards the achievement of some practical goal or, or some practical result. So, for example, um, if there are uh, sacrificial rituals, um, they might involve the, the sacrifice of uh, animals or perhaps in the past even human sacrifice, then it's been assumed that um, it's been pretty widely assumed that the people who perform those uh, ritual practices must be trying to achieve some result such as uh, bringing about a, a more um, beneficial harvest or some uh, benefit to the, the community of which they are a part. And that if they fail to perform these rituals, then that will have a detrimental effect on these matters. Now, it's not necessarily the case that that's a false um, account to be given of ritual practices. We'd need to look at them case by case. But I think what Wittgenstein was keen to do was to um, urge us not to simply assume that that must be the case. So he wanted to look at other alternative possibilities possible um, accounts that could be given. He was he was rather averse to the very idea of trying to explain uh, the rituals. He says in some places that he's uh, he's opposed to the very idea of explanation, which is a rather extreme extreme view to take. I think if we're more charitable to Wittgenstein, we 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 could read him. Well, uh, I suppose. Um, pay attention to the fact that these were rather quickly jotted notes and we shouldn't uh, always uh, hold him to his precise word. But uh, if we look at the spirit of what he says, then I think it's um, it's really urging caution about jumping to any uh, quick conclusions about what the, what the reasons or the explanation for performing ritual practices must be. And among the things that he urges that Wittgenstein urges us to do is to reflect upon our own um, our own reactions, our own responses uh, to learning about some of the the ritual practices um, that are in question here. And among the examples that he focuses on are precisely the sacrificial rituals that in that in the past would have involved a human sacrifice, and then there are there are certain. Um, uh, versions of those rituals in more recent times that don't necessarily involve actual human sacrifice, but involve a kind of mock human sacrifice. So perhaps the pretense of uh, throwing somebody into a fire when in fact one, one doesn't uh, actually throw them into the fire, but there's some sort of uh, pretense going on within the ritual context. Um, and Wittgenstein was suggesting that when we 
when we think about, when we look at these uh, rituals, even if they're not happening in, in the present, when we think about them, when we read about them and learn about them, what is it that we feel in response to them? How do we react? And he noted that in his own reactions, this was a sort of, I suppose, a, a personal uh, phenomenological observation on his part, that he, he feels a kind of, the way he put it was uh, a, a deep and sinister impression that, uh, that, that learning about the ritual makes upon him. And he thought that um, that, that impression was very significant in leading us to uh, realize why it might be that the rituals were performed in the first place. So not necessarily for some practical instrumental end, but rather because they are expressing something profound in human nature, a kind of awe or wonder, not only at the, the uh, the beneficial aspects of the natural world, but at the terrible and the horrible and the and the horrific and the the dangerous aspects of of life and the world as well. And um, Wittgenstein was just suggesting that um, we might take seriously the idea that certain uh, ritual practices are expressions of awe and wonder as much as they are, uh, or even more so than. Um, trying to get something practical done. And so he talks about this in terms of instinctive reactions that we might have, and also the, the idea that the, the rituals themselves are in some way expressions of instinctive reactions that the practitioners have to the world around them. And this idea, this, um, this idea of, in, of trying to avoid over-intellectualizing the, the practices has been very influential also in among, in some areas. I think I, I should uh, express this quite cautiously within some areas of uh, anthropological thinking and also uh, in the study of religion more broadly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, make, it brings me back to what you were saying before about the fact that a part of his work has undermined this, um, this notion of essences. So mm -hmm. if there is no essence to ritual, then presumably we can always view it in two ways one being that it's always a form of performance yeah and secondly maybe it doesn't really matter if there if there ever was an essence <laughs> in the process of the creation of the the ritual right right yeah yes yes that's right these things are very closely connected the um uh the i suppose the the, the proclivity that wittgenstein has um against the uh, the essentializing of, of religious phenomena comes through in his approach to to ritual so um uh, rather than assuming that there has to be some sort of essence hidden behind the ritual we should look um on the surface as it were and see what 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 that expresses what that what that conveys to us mm -hmm. and and so some some people and I, i'm not alone in this have have seen some affinities between wittgenstein's approach to uh the analysis of 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 meaning in language on the one hand and his um, analysis or his approach to the, the study of, of ritual activities on the other. Um, he, one, of, one of the sort of slogans that he, he uses sometimes is um, that, uh, that we should, well, he doesn't actually put it in terms of look at the surfaces, but he, um, he thinks that we should pay attention to what's in front of our noses, um, rather than always thinking that there's something hidden um, behind uh, what people say or what, what people do, but think about the um, the effect that it that it has upon us and that's 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 there, present, uh, open to view, as it were. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. 
Um, but it also made me think again about something you, you said before um, when you were describing Wittgenstein's reaction to experiencing this, this ritual. And he seemed to be describing instincts that were quite dark in a way. Mm, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, very, um, very dark. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting in that that brings up one of these dichotomies that, that's still playing out in, in various arenas of thought, which is this relationship between, well, if there's no essence, okay, that's fine. But it tends to, uh, well, it could potentially lead to one kind of thought, which is that anything goes. And yet that's not the case, is it? Rituals emerge in very specific forms. And those forms remain or they remain attractive because they, they seem to enable individuals and groups and societies to, to get in touch with something that may be difficult to define in many ways, but mm -hmm. somehow important. Yes, yes, uh, very much so. Um, and and when when you say that there's uh, possibly, or, or some people might think that there's a danger of uh, of slipping into a kind of everything and anything goes uh, idea, there w were you thinking that uh, that some some people might think that this this leaves open the the sort of sphere of interpretation. Just it just leaves it it's so open that it's it's unclear what would even count as a as a credible um, uh, account or or um, I hesitate to use the term explanation, but uh, but some some sort of credi credible account of what's going on in ritual practices was that the sort of danger that you were thinking of? Well, again, the word danger is problematic, but I, I was mm. actually thinking more along the lines of something like sort of you know cultural relativism, yeah, um, whereby it's very difficult to understand how we would go about assigning value to anything, mm. you know, at the extreme of that kind of logical line of thought. I mean, if we think about being able to invent anything, well, that makes me think of certain types of religious groups, which would commonly be described as cults, which from the outside may be perceived or viewed in that way, right? That they're mm -hmm. just kind of making it up as they go along, if we think about Scientology or the moon is. But at the same time, you know, the we can't deny the fact that many people find those groups all the same, deeply attractive. Yeah. And the question, in a sense, is is perhaps they're experiencing something like Wittgenstein did, that you know, in spite of appearances or in spite of forms, there is something deeply attractive that does seem to resonate in people all the same. Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, um, so although uh, Wittgenstein was was strongly averse to uh, the kind of essentialism that we've we've talked about, he was all, he also had a a tendency to to want to seek uh, deep within human nature uh, for, um, I suppose, some some sort of account of of why. Particular practices, particular ritual practices, uh, are are performed. Are are they expressing something deep within ourselves? And um, and that's that is that is a move in I suppose in the opposite direction from uh, from a cultural relativism, because uh, it would be looking for something that's perhaps common across uh, different different cultural communities that uh, that may be expressed may find expression in multiple different ways uh, within different cultural contexts but um but that there may be, may indeed be something uh, common there um and so i think there are you know these different lines of thinking within wittgenstein's work that that uh, certainly save it from uh, becoming very sim simplistic in any way and there's a, there's a, a, always a lot to explore um, I, I see some affinities between wittgenstein and, and nietzsche in this in this uh, regard because nietzsche again was was somebody who um, was a philosopher who looked to the uh, the sort of the, the deep 
uh, aspects of, of human nature for accounts of, of why we engage in, in certain activities. And I think Wittgenstein was, was thinking along similar lines when he was talking about um, uh, particular rituals making a deep and sinister impression upon us and also sort of being expressions of something deep and sinister. I mean, he, Wittgenstein, he wasn't uh, only interested in the deep and, uh, deep and sinister rituals, but uh, but they, they were among the uh, the practices that, that did have a particular interest for him. Because we, we might wonder, we might wonder, you know, why is it, for example, that, um, that the burning of effigies is such a widespread practice? Um, it's something I've been looking into and uh, um, not in any great detail, but it's just something that's been, I suppose, on the periphery of my interests. So, for example, if one does a, a search on Google Images, uh, just using the terms uh, burning an effigy, there's so many different varieties, uh, so many different forms that that practice takes um, across multiple different cultures and throughout history, it seems, um, people have burnt effigies and, and not, not only effigies, of course, they have sometimes burnt uh, live animals and live human beings within ritual contexts. But um, uh, Wittgenstein was fascinated by uh, the, the question, why is it that ritual practices should take among their various forms should take that particular form. What is it about the burning of something and the burning of an effigy, the burning of perhaps a, a live um, animal or human being? Um, what, what is the potency? What's the power of that act? Um, and, he, and he asked, again, in these sort of quick notes that he jotted down, he, he sort of speculated about whether it's the, it's the agony that's inflicted upon the victim. Well, it, there are lots of other things that that, um, that can uh, uh, inflict agony upon living beings. Um, there seems to be something particularly symbolically powerful about um, about the burning of uh, either a live being or a, or an effigy of something, and we do see that uh, resonating across multiple cultures. And that's 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 just something that's that's rather fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. Um, yeah, I wanted to give a response to that without us going off on a, a new line of inquiry. So I'm going to set that aside, actually, and I'm going to yes. skip, <laughs> skip forward because, I mean, you know, Wittgenstein, like uh, Heidegger or many other great thinkers, I mean, there are so many different uh, directions that can be taken with the kind of thought that they engaged in mm. and uh, the, the consequences for us mere mortals living today. So um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about, I would like to talk a little bit about some of your work um, and some of your published work, and I'd like to mention something about a book called Contemplating Religious Forms of Life. You have a, a chapter entitled The Possibility of Honest Religious Thinking. Hmm. I just wondered, can you, can you explain what is meant by that phrase and, and what such a form of thinking would entail? Yes, well, uh, no, it's interesting. You should pick up on that phrase. It, it, I'm afraid it doesn't get us away from Wittgenstein at all because it's no, a phrase. It, it's, it's very, it's very close to a phrase that he himself uses. He, he uses the phrase um, on, an, an honest. He speaks of an honest religious thinker in uh, in some of the notes that were mm. uh, published um, after his death, and it's a, it, and it's presumably a in a in a different way from someone like Christopher Hitchens. Yes, yes, uh, yes. In a, in a very different way from uh, from from Hitchens and and uh, perhaps others as have used similar phrases too. Um, 
Yes, it's not a it's not a well elaborated remark of Wittgenstein's. There's just um, one little place where he he he, he writes um, he uses the phrase an honest religious thinker, and he he relates this to the image of a tightrope walker. Um, so he he compares an honest religious thinker to somebody who's walking across a tightrope, and he says uh, something to the effect that um, uh, this this honest religious thinker is like a tightrope walker who, um, despite walking upon the slenderest possible support, uh, does in fact manage to, to balance. Um, now, as I say, Wittgenstein doesn't really elaborate the remark. Um, he doesn't say a great deal more um, than, than what I've just said. So it's, it's open to interpretation, but, um, but one way in which it might be interpreted, and I think is a plausible way of interpreting it, given other things that Wittgenstein says, is that it has something to do with uh, with finding a balance point between, on the one hand, um, retaining one's sort of critical faculties uh, in connection with religiosity, and on the other hand, um, allowing oneself to feel um, the sorts of emotions and sensibilities that that go along with with having a religious life so it's it's finding that balance point between the the intellectual and the um, what I'm not quite sure what would be the best single word for it but something like the the emotional or the uh, the felt aspects of, of of living a religious life and I think Wittgenstein felt, Felt attention within his own life between those different uh, those different strands those different dimensions. He he's he's well known for having said in one place that um, that he's not a religious man. He's not he doesn't consider himself a religious person, but he can't help thinking of things from a religious point of view, or um, uh, how does he put it? Uh, approaching problems from a religious point of view, something like that, and. Again, it's a quick remark, and it's not um, obvious what how we should read it. But um, but it does seem that there's something in Wittgenstein's own life, his own biography, um, that carries over into his philosophical thinking, which involves a, if not a tension, then some sort of uh, dynamic interplay between the the religious urges on the one hand, and the and the urge not to allow oneself to become too immersed in in a religious way of living, because it might run the risk of um, impeding one's uh, critical faculties. And the uh, and he uses the yeah. So in one place he uses the phrase uh, honest, an honest religious thinker, and compares that to a, a tightrope walker um, uh, as somebody that finds a balance between those two aspects. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting, and I think that's a, a a good point that can be added to the theme of the the podcast this year because we've been taking what I've loosely defined as a, as a sort of stance against anti-intellectualism, mm. um, not in terms of you know trying to find some sort of abstract you know wholly theoretical intellectual enterprise in thinking about Buddhism and so forth, but in finding that kind of balance. So it's interesting that Wittgenstein himself was honest enough to actually express that kind of thought. Yeah. I know he's been defined as a mystic by some people, and uh, others have refused that entirely. Well, what's your own thought on that? Do you, do you think it, when it comes down to it, he was a bit of a mystic? I, I think he did have a mystical strand in him. Um, it's 
it's probably well normally when he's characterized uh, as a mystic it's in connection with his early work because he he did talk in terms of the mystical um in the the tractatus that i i referred to earlier and also in the the notes the notebooks that that led up to the composition of that work um the the work comprises uh, seven main propositions and then lots of sub propositions, lots of uh, sort of subordinate clauses, as it were, that are commentary upon the main propositions. And in the the last couple of them, um, there is there are some sort of mystical sounding uh, phrases that that come through. So he says, for example, that um, it's not the uh, how does he put it? It's it's not what the world is, but that the world is that is mystical. Um, so the very the very fact that there is anything at all, the very fact that the the world exists, um, is there's something mystical about that. Um, and yet, and, and the very last proposition of the of the tractatus is the what's gained some degree of. Um, of, uh, of, of fame, I suppose, among Wittgenstein's phrases. In one English translation, it reads, um, uh, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must uh, be silent. And, and and many people have seen a sort of mystical resonance within that phrase that uh, there, is, there are many things in life and the world that, uh, that we cannot give words to. There's a sort of apophatic streak there, um, the, the idea that, uh, that there, are, there are things we, we just cannot say anything intelligible about and yet which have extremely um, deep significance for us. And, and Wittgenstein does does give expression to that thought within within those um, those early works Late, later on in his later work um, i think that you know i think there's still that that uh, perhaps that mystical streak there somewhere but um, but he sees as i've said before um, he he sees the philosophical uh, project as being much more um, looking at the at the surfaces of things rather than trying to seek for some um, deep essence behind them and uh, uh, and and I think to some extent that keeps his his later philosophy more grounded in a way rather than uh, floating off into uh, mystical abstractions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, such a such a thought should emerge within the analytic tradition as well, mm. mm-hmm. and you know that he's. You know, look back at his earlier work and critiqued it, but uh, I think he's right. I think that's that's an interesting take on mysticism. Just the accept the acceptance that it, it it really is quite incredible. Just to think the fact that the world exists and we exist on it. Yes. Um, but at the same time, you know, I can't, part of me is just thinking. Well, I'm sure there are, are quite a number of sort of new age teachers who've picked up on Wittgenstein's phrase and sort of thrown it about in their own teachings to kind of excuse certain types of, of, of thought and practice. But um, what I would like to do is move on to a work of yours, which really was the, the book that inspired me to get in touch with you, which is about rebirth and the stream of life and reincarnation more broadly. Uh, it's a fascinating book, and uh, we've actually had a guest on in the past called Jayarava, who took a very interesting take to reincarnation. He basically deconstructed the whole thing through a thorough exploration of physics and uh, chemistry and other scientific resources. Now, I I remain quite agnostic on the whole thing because I think that's probably the well, actually, I can just you know use the phrase you, you gave before. I, I can't say much else about it, so I'm just going to remain silent <laughs> and let you do the talking. Um, but, I, you know, ultimately, I assume that this life is it, and, you know, that's fine. I can live with that. 
What's your own um, take then on the reincarnation question? Before we get into the book more specifically, what's your own personal take, if you're happy to share that? Yes, yes, I, I am. I'm, I'm certainly happy to to have a go at sharing it. It's it's no no easy question. Um, sometimes it, it can be very difficult to to figure out what one thinks about a certain subject oneself. Right. Um, and uh, and 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 it's not always the case that engaging in philosophical inquiry really um, illuminates that. It can make it even an even deeper conundrum in in many ways. Um, right. And I, I'm also not sure that I can completely uh, detach these things, you know, sort of my my personal take, as it were, on the one one hand and my philosophical approach on the other. So if you'll forgive me, I'll, I'll sort of tie them tie them together in, in, in my response, mm -hmm. um, because in my in my philosophical approach, I, 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 I very much put the emphasis on um, trying to deepen my understanding, and of course, then by extension, I hope um, uh, my readers' understanding as well of of just what it means to um, to hold a particular belief or to engage in a particular form of life that involves um, uh, particular forms of discourse, uh, and in this case, uh, discourse about reincarnation or rebirth. Um, and and so there's a, there's a, there's a certainly a strong agnosticism in my approach to these these things, but it, there's also a, a sort of further degree of agnosticism, which is that not only would I say that I don't know whether rebirth reincarnation occurs or not, but there's also a sense in which I'm I'm still not even quite sure what it means to believe that it does. Now that that's that's only a starting point. I've got I've got more more to say um, <laughs> than, than than that. But um, but I, I, it remains a question for me. You know, an, an ongoing question: just what it would amount to, what it would mean to believe in rebirth, and that that very sort of meta question, as it were, makes it far from straightforward to you know respond in any kind of simple yes or no way to the question whether I believe it myself. Um, and, and now one of the one of the tasks of my book Rebirth and the Stream of Life was to bring out the variety of forms that um, a belief in rebirth can take. And so there's also that further question of just well, well, which version of rebirth are we talking about? So whether I believe in it or not would um, that, that some answer to that question would need to be to be brought into play. Um, but and now I don't want to sound evasive. But uh, because of this emphasis on meaning and understanding, I think the, the first thing I would say in response to a question, other than what I've said already, but in, in response to a question to the, um, along the lines of whether or what my take on it is, is that I can see uh, the meaningfulness in certain ways of talking about rebirth. And I think with, when it comes to religious beliefs, religious practices, religious ways of talking, that is an enormous step because there are, there are many, um, many things that people profess to believe uh, within religious contexts where it's just not at all clear what 
what they even mean by the belief. So as I say, I, it remains an open question for me exactly what it does mean to believe in rebirth. But I think within particular contexts of discourse about rebirth, I can see the meaning. I can see what it amounts to, what uh, what purpose it has, what meaning it has for the pe people who believe in it. And I consider that to be a significant step. So I would... Um, I would elaborate this in relation to, it's often helpful to invoke particular examples. Um, so I'll I'll talk briefly about a, an example which doesn't occur in, in my book, but which I've written briefly about elsewhere, which is the, um, I think it's, it's, it's fairly well known, the, the Mahayana Buddhist uh, meditation um, that involves meditating uh, upon the thought that all sentient beings have been one's mother in a previous life, um, in, in, indeed in innumerable previous lives, and not just one's mother, but one has stood in every um, conceivable uh, relationship to um, every sentient being uh, that, the, that there is. Um, now, I think it's not incidental, and it's not um, not a mere arbitrary factor that that kind of thought is uh, is one that it, one is enjoined to entertain or to think or to think about or to meditate upon uh, within a particular meditative context. And when one reflects upon it, one can see, I think, and I, I, I don't think it's a great stretch of the imagination to see that there's a there's a deep ethical significance to that kind of meditation. It's, it encourages a particular et ethical attitude towards other beings, and not simply in isolation, but in the broader context of the of the practice as a whole. And I can see what the ethic. I can see that there's an ethical significance there. But then when one when one um, sort of abstracts away from that uh, particular context of cultivating a particular ethical attitude towards um, other sentient beings, other people and animals and so on. And one treats it, um, the belief in rebirth, or one might call it a theory of rebirth, as though it were something more like a, a scientific theory of how the world is, or um, uh Yes, a, a sort of grand theory about how the the, uh, the conditions uh, underlying the universe and so on. Um, then it starts to become much more of a conundrum. How could it be? What does it mean to think that, um, say, I'm thinking here of the um, of that that scene in the film Seven Years in Tibet, where uh, where this this topic of uh, uh, every every sentient being having been one's mother in a previous life comes up, and the and the scene involves um, earthworms being rescued from the foundations of a of a building that's being built. So how could it be that um, that an earthworm, for example, has been one's mother in innumerable previous lives? What what would that even amount to? What that what would that mean? Well, it's not clear. I don't think it's clear when one abstracts away from the the meditative uh, practice. So when it comes to um, that kind of abstract theoretical context of reflection, then I'm I'm not sure that I, I can see what the meaning is. But when we talk about it in perhaps more ethical, uh, evaluative terms, then the, the, the significance comes through to me much more clearly. And I might even be um, tempted in certain instances to talk in those terms myself. So if I have a very strong relationship with somebody, then talking in terms of my having um, known that person in previous lives and perhaps having a relationship that st extends beyond this life has has much more sense and uh, meaning to me than uh, than uh, simply thinking of it in terms of a of a theory.
Yeah, so it's all interesting. So you're you're basically, from what I've understood from your position here, then it's it's this um, it's acting as if, and it becomes an ethical practice with certain types of outcomes which serve specific religious purposes within contexts. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, we can leave aside the the you know the bigger abstract question as you described it of whether it's actually true or not. I I think I'd want to qualify that slightly, which is, um, and this is difficult. You know, I'm not, I'm still struggling with how to how to put it across uh, well, and um, and I have a few goes in in the book that we're referring to, but um, that we we could we could call it the relationship between metaphysics and ethics, and it's often assumed that. Um, that somehow meta, the, the rather ethics is underpinned by the metaphysics. So when you when you spoke just now in terms of um, I suppose the, the the issue of whether it's true or not, I think there are some big questions to be asked about what just what we mean by something's being true. Right. Because what I what I suspect is that there's um, there's a, an assumption on many people's part. Um, along these lines, which is what it amounts for reincarnation or rebirth to be true is for there to be some sort of fact of the matter about whether uh, whether we really are reincarnated, whether we really do reincarnate from one life to another, and that that itself is a metaphysical issue. And then the, the ethical questions about, um, well, what, what are the implications of that for how we ought to relate to one another are some, some sort of uh, secondary or epiphenomenal um, element to the, to, the, to the belief. But I want to I want to question that, um, and I try to question it in in the book. Now, I'm not I'm not sure that the the, the questioning uh, fully works, but I think that it's uh, it's something that is worth worth considering. Um, and the way that I well, one of the ways that I approach the uh, the attempt to sort of interrogate that assumption, and and uh, and incidentally, another way of characterising the assumption is to talk in terms of lo- of uh, a relationship of logical priority. So the idea that um, that the metaphysical has logical priority over the ethical, and that um, the the ethical attitude is somehow uh, dependent upon, contingent upon uh, something about the the metaphysical level. Um, so one of the ways in which I I go about, again, I suppose we could talk in terms of disrupting or or, or just um, investigating whether we need to subscribe to that assumption, is. Um, I, I appeal to the work. I invoke um, some ideas from um, a scholar called uh, named uh, Catherine Osborne, who, in one of her books from 2007, a book called uh, "Dumb Dumb Beasts and Dead Philosophers." Uh, Osborne, she's a specialist in um, classical uh, Greek philosophy in particular, and so she's talking about the uh, the ideas of transmigration of souls or reincarnation that were um, propounded by uh, philosophers such as uh, Pythagoras and Empedocles and uh, and Plato, and she considers the question: you know, was why was it that they advocated um, the ethical treatment of animals? Uh, and and the the taking up of uh, vegetarian uh, dietary uh, practices and such like, and um, many people would say, well, it's because they, among other things, perhaps it's because they believed in uh, the transmigration of souls that um, that there is uh, a deep affinity between human beings and other species of animal, and that this affinity consists in the at least the possibility 
of ourselves being reincarnated as uh, non-human animals and, and animals being reincarnated as, as human beings. And that brings about a, a certain uh, kinship relationship between us, a, a, a profound uh, intimacy of that kind. And it's for that reason that they advocated vegetarianism. But um, what Osborne proposes is that um, it might not be that way. And I'm not sure that she's putting it much more strongly than that. But she's suggesting that um, there's at least in principle no reason to think that the uh, the ethical prescriptions uh, were based upon the metaphysical theory, but it could be that the metaphysical theory or um, set of doctrines was a, a post hoc rationalization, that would be one way of putting it, or a way of um, giving expression to, that would be another way of putting it, giving expression to the uh, pre-existing ethical commitments. And if we think of it in those terms, then it looks more more like the uh, the ethical commitments um, have the logical priority over the metaphysical ideas or doctrines. Um, now, the way that I take this thought, this line of thinking forward, is to question whether there needs to be any kind of uh, logical priority at all. Um, does it do we need do we need to um, commit ourselves to the idea that either metaphysics precedes ethics or that ethics precedes metaphysics? Could it not be that they both arise uh, in conjunction with one another? And um, and I'm not putting that forward as an alternative theory of how um, uh, the relationship between metaphysics and ethics comes about within this context, but rather just putting it forward as a possibility. And I think it is a, a live uh, possibility. And I want to question whether a term like truth should be restricted to the uh, to the metaphysical dimension of this kind of belief. Could it not be that uh, that we'd want to say that there's something true about the the ethics as well? So to take to look again at the the idea of um, every sentient being having been one's mother in a previous life, why should we say that, well, whether one believes that to be true or not depends upon a certain sort of metaphysical conception that, uh, that underlies the ethical commitment? Could it not be that the ethical commitment itself bears a certain truth? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of... Uh, <laughs> you, you've left me slightly speechless there. Mm. <laughs> Also, because the next question that that I was going to propose, which is disrupted by what you've just said, is that you know presumably if you get rid of reincarnation from from Buddhism or Hinduism, wouldn't it be the case that their metaphysics no longer holds up? Which is certainly one conclusion that's been reached by more skeptical interpretations in the West of the whole theory of reincarnation. Yep. But um, you're right. I mean, what I'm getting from you is, is we're asking different types of questions. And looking at how those questions produce certain types of answers or, or consequence, consequences as a result. But um, let's do this then. I'll, I'll switch to a slightly different question because that's, that's all very interesting and it kind of leads, leaves the field very open. Um, that's obviously, in a sense, a core outcome of, of, of putting together this book. What are, what are some of the other major core themes that, that came up for you in writing this text and that perhaps still remain unresolved? Yes, good. Um, yes, well, um, no, no. I mean, I'm not not surprised that this 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 uh, 
uh, these thoughts about the relationship between metaphysics and ethics uh, left you a little bit uh, startled uh, because it, it continues to startle me. I'm not, you know, I, I, there's still a lot of um, uh, unclarity in my my own thinking about the relationship, but I think there's some, there, there do remain some very interesting questions there, you know, to do with um, very broad ranging issues um, concerning the relation between uh, what some have called the, sort of the relation between facts and values. Um, so it's often assumed that um, that the questions of facts might well have a, uh, have a truth value. They might uh, we we can respond to them in terms of their being true or false and so on. But when it comes to values, they're in a, they're in a very different domain, and uh, I think there's still a lot to be be thought about there. And it is indeed one of the one of the core themes of my book. I think this relationship between metaphysics and ethics, and just endeavouring to um, unsettle some of the assumptions that we might have there. Um, and so that, that's that's certainly one of the, the main themes. Some You were asking about some of the other themes. Um, well, one of them I think I've, I've touched upon already, which is uh, the theme of uh, variety and heterogeneity, um, emphasizing the, the diversity of forms that, um, that a belief in rebirth can take and and also the the variety of, of different cultural contexts in which such a uh, a belief has had a place um, so I'm not a specialist in in many of these areas but uh, but my research took me into looking at uh, Native American uh, traditions and uh, African certain indigenous traditions within Africa and um, uh, South America, and uh, in addition, of course, to the, uh, the the tradition, the major traditions deriving from from South Asia, and and there are others too. There are other other places within which um, beliefs in some something that we might describe at least as a starting point, uh, a belief in rebirth has has had a place. So just that that. Uh, Almost bewildering variety of, uh, of, of of places and different forms that the belief has taken. That is a, a significant theme within the book as a whole, and it's it sort of strikes and I hope it was it strikes a note of caution um, before we. We, we we start as philosophers are, are often tempted to do to overgeneralize about. Uh, uh, reincarnation or, or rebirth beliefs, because when we see the diversity, we, we we will no doubt see similarities and affinities between them. But uh, we also need to be attentive to the the particularities. Um, so that's what's one theme. And it's fascinating that um, such a kind of belief should emerge in such diverse and, and disparate cultures across time. It, it makes me think about the sort of the need within the collective that such a belief feeds. Yes. Itself again is a is a fascinating question, and I think it's very easy. I, you know, I really enjoyed um, the the last interview we did with uh, Jayarava on this topic because it was so enjoyable to hear somebody um, so well evidenced, you know, take apart such a belief in such a passionate manner. <clears throat> but at the same time, you know, if we set aside the belief that you know he has the true answer to that that question of whether reincarnation or not is possible, it's fas fascinating from the human. An ethical level again, just to think, you know, it emerges to fill a need, right? As yeah. a desire within a person or a populace to, to, to believe that such a thing is possible. And that to itself that in itself is is already a, a fascinating area of exploration. 
Yes, yes, I agree, and um, and yes, I, I I heard your interview with uh, with Jaya Rava, and I, I I too found it um, very extremely interesting. I think he's got a, a lot of uh, valuable points to make, um, and 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 from what I I can gather about Jairava's approach is it's certainly not a, a simplistic reductive uh, kind of approach. Um, mm. You know, some some people would take a, a scientific uh, worldview, a sort of um, a worldview based on contemporary uh, uh, natural science and assume that somehow that's the bedrock of um, of our knowledge of of reality and that um, of much much of the uh, our mythological life and our ethical life and the the life that we live through our poetry and our literature and so on is some sort of froth that um, that orbits around that that hard core of the scientific reality but Jairava is certainly not somebody that takes that um, rather scientific uh, sort of uh, over oversimplified view of things so I think he yes I think he's uh, his, his take on it is is extremely interesting and valuable and he's obviously paid very close attention to the uh, intricacies of the particular um, especially Buddhist uh, traditions and how they have tried to theorize and articulate the uh, the different conceptions of, of rebirth that they have in order to make some sort of theoretical sense of it and uh, and I think Jairava's view is that uh, actually they they failed to uh, to come up with a with a credible, uh, well worked out um, theory, and I and I think I'd I think I'd go along with that um, to a large mm-hmm. extent because um, um, it as as I was suggesting earlier, it, it is often the case that when one um, moves from a sort of ethic, ethically highly ethically laden form of discourse and endeavors to abstract from that and to develop it into a something that at least on the face of it resembles something more like a scientific theory then um, it can lose contact with the original context the original purposes um, of, uh, of of what was in what was trying to be articulated through that that form of discourse um and and it can sometimes become utterly absurd it can be become um uh, r- ridiculous to try to turn the the thought that all um living beings have been one's mother in innumerable previous lives into something resembling a scientific theory it's just not clear how you would go about that and yet as as i as i've I hope I've made clear already, and as you picked up on, um, I don't want to then move from that to saying, well, so it's either either you believe um, that the that it's true, or you see it as something that's merely uh, serving some sort of pragmatic function. I think that that's uh, too quick a distinction to make, and I want to uh, sort of hold on to the, I suppose the. Uh, uh, the willingness to uh, hold that in question, hold uh, to call that uh, that very distinction into question. Um, yeah, so that, that's the variety. And then, I mean, coming back to the, these core themes in in my book, embedded within the the, the title is is one of the themes. So the, the book's called uh, Rebirth and the Stream of Life, and there are good reasons why I picked up on that phrase stream of life because um, it's it's been used in 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 several contexts but two that are of particular interest to me and and one is um, well obviously the the context of talking about rebirth and and the, the notion of sansara within um, rebirth traditions deriving from South Asia um, 
the, the, ter- the Sanskrit term sansara is often translated as uh, something like the, the, the cycle of rebirth, but uh, but more literally, it's it's a sort of flowing on, a meandering. A, uh, it's got that connection with the the idea of a the very idea of a stream. Um, so the flowing on from one life to another. Um, so the, the the very idea of a stream of life is there, uh, deeply embedded within uh, some of the major. Uh, rebirth traditions themselves. And I wanted to explore that idea, just what it means, what it amounts to, to think of one's life in those terms as being not a, a sort of once and forever, uh, once and for always um, a kind of one-off occurrence, but as part of a of a longer trajectory of, of lifetimes. I think it's a, an interesting question, just what kind of bearing that has upon the way that one uh, lives one's life. Um, but also um, coming back to, to Wittgenstein, he uses the phrase stream of life and he uses uh, phrases similar to it to refer to the the sort of context with it that we need to attend to that we need to look to if we're going to understand our uh, words and, and forms of behavior so he, he uses not only the term stream of life but sometimes a, a, a phrase that gets translated as um, uh, the stream of thought and life and the uh, the weave of life and the flow of life and so on as as um sort of giving an image, giving a picture, uh, some sort of pictorial representation to the idea that our lives are indeed um, complex and flowing and and there are lots of different influences coming in and we're, we're um, part of a, of a sort of greater uh, trajectory of the world. And, um, and that is in some ways ca- encapsulated in, in this phrase from Wittgenstein. So I wanted to bring those themes together, the idea that we might explore uh, the notion of rebirth as um, – uh, conceptualized in terms of a, of a stream of, of life, a stream of living and ongoing flow from one life to another through um, a sort of Wittgensteinian approach that um, enjoins us to be attentive to the stream of words and thoughts and actions within our own lives. So that's, um, we, we could call that one theme or we could call that um, that two themes sort of um, that, that uh, originate from the, the phrase stream of life within my book. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Now, I do want to say one thing, which is which is related to the the topic of the book, but uh, it's slightly off topic at the same time. Which is, in my own thoughts about reincarnation, and after the conversation with Jayarava, but also with others, um, one thought remains in a sense. If we're if we're going to at least indulge slightly in the idea of of, of truth or a metaphysical reality, which is that you know all matter transforms and nothing is ever fully eliminated. And the question of, of what is consciousness remains with us. And although a few people like to believe they have the answer to that question, there's certainly no consensus. Um, so, you know, my, my kind of thought is this. If we were to assume that consciousness were somehow material, then I think it seems fair to imagine it might transform and continue somehow. And in that case, some form of reincarnation could actually be almost inevitable. Um, I also like to think about this idea as well, coming at it from a different perspective, that the idea of radical ending, you know, of complete termination, also seems quite counterintuitive to some degree. Would you agree with that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's very interesting what what you say, and and the, I suppose the idea of um, of consciousness being something 
material in some way does relate to the idea of um, of an ongoing stream because if we look to some of the uh, sort of rebirth traditions themselves including some traditions of, of Buddhism we do come across um, uh, re rebirth being talked about in terms of a of an ongoing stream and what is it a stream of well sometimes it might be talked of in terms of a, a sort of series of uh, causal relationships between or causal relations between uh, causes and and effects but in in other places we do come across uh, sort of ways of talking that that um, imply that there is a uh, some sort of continuity of consciousness and hence perhaps a, a, a stream of consciousness that um, that uh, provides a sort of thread that's running through uh, the the series of lifetimes so it's not um, I don't think it's inappropriate to in invoke that kind of that way of talking in relation to uh, rebirth traditions um, but at the same time it, it does raise uh, difficult philosophical questions about what might be meant by um, the idea of consciousness being something material. I, I agree with you that there's an ongoing um, series of philosophical discussions and debates that's been going on for many years um, about what consciousness is and uh, and how there might be some explanation as to how consciousness arose in the first place and what its relationship to uh, the material world is and, and so on. Um, I suppose with my uh, Wittgensteinian hat on, I might um, I might want to inquire into the uh, what Wittgenstein would call the grammar of um, of the of the term conscious or consciousness, and to to just you know think about the the ways in which the notion of consciousness arises within ordinary everyday ways of talking. Um, I mean that that would be a that would be quite a long task, a long process, and there's <laughs> not really time to engage in it fully here, but. Um, but uh, as a starting point, you know, we might might think about um, just ordinary ways of speaking, such as talking in terms of somebody being uh, conscious at one time and unconscious at another, and and that might lend itself to talking about them having consciousness, and so being conscious, having consciousness uh, as a as a property, and perhaps also as a as a as a as a range of capacities that being conscious gives you certain capacities that you wouldn't have otherwise capacities for experiencing and sensing and feeling and so on but but then to move from that into thinking of consciousness as a thing as something that uh, that might um well, there might be a temptation to think of it as a kind of object that can be uh, that can be pictured as as a thing. And if we if we take too literally the um, the, the the notion of of a stream or a flow or a river of consciousness, and we think of consciousness in those terms, it's I think I think Wittgenstein himself would would probably think that we're in, we're very much in danger of getting into difficult philosophical knots that we could we could benefit from untying by um, by perhaps restricting ourselves or limiting ourselves well not limiting ourselves but rather being more attentive to um, the ordinary ways in which the, the the term consciousness is used and not straying too far away from those ways at least not not too quickly yeah you're right it's um it's a minefield so mm. <laughs> i'm gonna stay on topic slightly here because <laughs> our time i, I, rec I recognize we've uh, we've been at it for almost an hour and a half and i've got two more things i want to ask before we finish if right. that's okay with you yes absolutely yeah yeah so um i've been thinking about how to pose this penultimate question because you you've in part answered it so i, I kind of want to make it slightly more open um the original question was you know what's the main takeaway for you from writing this book but um, what I might change it to is something along the lines of 
Um, where do you stand now in relationship to it, and what remains the biggest open question? Mm. Yes, I mean, I, I suppose I've I've hinted at some of those um, yeah. remaining questions already, which is, it, it, I mean, it, there's so the so the big one that I've um, I've referred to is is uh, what I've put in terms of the relationship between metaphysics and ethics, and and this is the sort of overarching theme there is is the is the question of meaning um so it's it's the ongoing question of of what it means to um yeah, there's, there are some really big philosophical questions here to do. You know, what what is it? What does it mean to believe something? To believe anything, and and how, as a uh, from a philosophical perspective, do we go about um, endeavouring to understand what somebody believes, what we ourselves believe, what it amounts to to believe something? Because th this brings in issues to do with the relationship between behaviour and belief. Uh, there's a there's a long-standing. Um, I suppose it's a it's a long-standing assumption among many philosophers, and even if they would uh, explicitly disavow this this picture of things, um, implicitly they might still subscribe to it, which is that belief is some sort of entity that um, that has a place within our minds. If we want to talk in terms of minds, or uh, these days uh, materialist philosophers might think of uh, belief as having a place within the brain, uh, and that there might be might be certain beliefs that we can detect through um, uh, fMRI scans or something that uh, that, that particular um, uh, neurons light up when uh, when we think about certain things and that's the place where the belief is located and this was a this was the kind of picture that so that Wittgenstein was very um, that were very wary of thought that, uh, that it could be extremely misleading um, but it means that there are ongoing questions about just what it is to believe something and and what it might be to um, discern whether somebody believes something does it come through in the way that they respond to the world um, and and how might we uh, tell whether they believe it or they don't really believe it so that's a huge that's a huge question that remains um, uh, maybe not at the forefront of my mind because it's it's um, it's something that uh, that just uh, it, it's sort of too big in a way but it um, it remains something that I try to tackle from from different angles uh, so that, that remains and, um, out. Sorry, go on. Yeah, and it has um, it has enormous um, eth ethical consequences, right? Mm. Also politically and um, legally. It made me think while you were speaking about another one of the the, the new atheists, uh, Sam Harris has has written a book about belief, and I, I wonder. I'm pretty ignorant about these things, which is you know why I'm speaking to you. But I wonder if, to some degree, he hasn't taken a slightly Wittgensteinian view of belief, which is that. You know, if we look at the, the visible or the everyday, then his definition of belief would be that which underpins the way people habitually behave or what they actually do in their lives on a regular basis. Right. Yeah, I mean, I haven't haven't read um, Sam Harris's book on this, so I'm not really in a good position to to comment on him in particular. Yeah. But um, but it, it would it would certainly be taking a a Wittgenstein influenced approach if one were to say, for example, that. Um, if one wants to uh, discover what somebody believes, then one needs to look to the way they live their lives rather than uh, simply asking them, for example, because um, uh, what we say about our beliefs is one 
is one element, but it's not the only element. Uh, sometimes we can be uh, self-delusory. Uh, we can sort of delude ourselves um, into, or we can be mistaken about what we believe. Uh, believe it's uh, it's not not unheard of. Um, and so it's it's a it's something that touches both upon the, the philosophical and also upon the the personal because. Um, uh, it can be an on, ongoing question for me and I think for others, uh, what is it that one believes oneself? And sometimes we can discover what we believe through the ways that we respond to other people and, and, and to the world. And that can come as a surprise. Uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, maybe I wasn't, uh, wasn't aware that I, I really felt that deeply about something until I, I responded in the way that I did. Um, so yes, that's a, I think that's an interesting area of, of inquiry. Um, it's I mean it's related obviously it's related to to my book, but it's 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 far bigger than the the question of rebirth. Um, so you were asking me about uh, the how did you put it in terms of the main sort of takeaway message, um, or was it more in terms of outstanding issues? Yeah, I mean the, the way I changed it slightly was to say you know what remains. I could even change it again, actually, <laughs> since we're at this point. Mm. But, uh, you know, I, I think for for intellectuals, for those working in the, the academic intellectual fields, I think it's always interesting, in a sense, to see the bridge between the professional and the personal, which often manifests itself in what excites a person or, or what, what drives them or, or what... Uh, what can be understood is what do they want to understand the most in a sense, you know, yeah. where's the desire manifesting itself. And I think that's, that's something that's always worth asking because it often tells you quite a, quite a lot about the person and, uh, and some of the underlying underpinning, uh, characteristics of the kind of research and, and inquiry that they're engaged in. So I, I don't know if you've answered that already or if there's something lingering still. Um, not maybe not specifically on that, but um, but but uh, coming back to the the question of whether there are any, I suppose, um, uh, residual issues from from the book that uh, that I I'm still grappling with. Um, I think uh, I suppose I could put it in terms of philosophical methodology. There's there's plenty of uh, of questions there because one of the things I try to do in the book is to. Um, uh, Dem demonstrate and explore a way of um, of engaging in interdisciplinary philosophical inquiry. Um, so drawing upon uh, ethnographic sources in particular, but in some places I I draw upon uh, autobiographical or, or biographical works. Um, so not not autobiography autobiography of myself. I mean autobiographies written by other people and and how they. Um, sort of articulate their own experiences and attitudes to the world in those um, in those works, and how as a as a as somebody that's coming from a philosophical perspective, one might use those accounts as resources for philosophical reflection. Um, so I try to do that. I mean, among many other sources that I draw upon in the book, I, I, that's one direction that I go in. And that remains a, a, a key part, a key strand of my uh, philosophical practice, my philosophical approach. And it's not 
a straightforward matter because sometimes you know the risk of of um, participating in interdisciplinary uh, forms of inquiries that one can sometimes fail to or, or what 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 one produces as a as a result can um, some people can miss the miss the purpose miss the point and see it as fall, falling between uh, different disciplines rather than making a substantial contribution to to any one of them so that's that's an ongoing sort of difficulty and, uh, and an issue that I, I try to uh, uh, work with, um, sort of bridging the, uh, the, the disciplinary gap between, say, philosophy on the one hand, uh, anthropology of religion and uh, other forms of ethnography on the other, but also drawing upon works of, of literature as a, as a source, as a resource for, uh, for philosophical reflection as well. Um, so that's, that's something that I continue to do. That's interesting. It's interesting as well because I think that um, I haven't always understood why there's not so much interdisciplinary practice and it seems to me that that's perhaps one of the most interesting areas for exploration at present, especially as there's a lot of uh, a lot of sort of academic recycling of the, the same old, <laughs> if I can permit myself to say that. And uh, certainly for lay people like myself, often, you know, works that come out of uh, academia, which are more accessible for us that's often where the most interesting new kind of thought or provocative kind of thought is taking place. But I've got one more question for you, which is on topic and off topic at the same time. And it refers, it relates actually to another work of yours, which is Language, Ethics and Animal Life. And in that, you, you once again put uh, Wittgenstein to work, but this time thinking about animal life and the environment. Um, the reason I bring it up is because it's a topic that's been on the margins of various conversations I've had this year with academics from different disciplines, and in particular this exploring the relationship between consciousness and practices that work on it, uh, such as meditation, but also the environment, environmental concerns, and you know the role of vegetable and animal life in all of that. So you know I would finish up by asking this: What does Wittgenstein? have to contribute to this kind of topic mm. yes no it's, it's a good question and um, yes the book that you you refer to uh, language ethics and animal life is it's an edited volume so I, I co-edited it with um, with a, a couple of um, friends of mine um, Niklas Forsberg and Nora Hamalainen uh, who are two Scandinavian uh, uh, scholars uh, philosophers of uh, and in, with strong interests in Wittgenstein um, and my own contribution to that uh, that volume, uh, my own chapter, it takes um, the, the the idea of wonder, wonder, uh, wonder and attention to the lives of animals as as its central theme, and that is something that I I draw from uh, Wittgenstein himself. He, I think Wittgenstein was was very much in that tradition that um, that sees wonder as the as the starting point for philosophical inquiry, or at least one of them. Um, so another another starting point for Wittgenstein's philosophical endeavours was uh, was uh, was puzzlement. You know, being puzzled about something, but uh, mm. but the experience of of wondering. Um, 
uh, in awe at uh, the, the world around us is 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 very strongly there as well, and uh, and maybe that's that's something that is uh, continuous throughout his philosophical work because we um, we referred earlier to his the, the sort of mystical uh, strand in his thinking that comes through particularly in the in the early work, but um, and and that that's strongly connected with a sense of wonder at the at the very existence of of the world, um, but I think. A sense of wonder uh, remains there also, and and um, and I share that, and 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 it's also there uh, to make another connection with something that we we were talking about earlier is this this idea of uh, different ritual practices and how how those practices might uh, be expressions of wonder, not just at the not just at the pleasant and um, and beneficent uh, aspects of life, but sometimes wonder at the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the terrible and the um, and the horrific aspects of of life in the world as well. And so I wanted to to think about that um, in my chapter in that. That book. So, so I'm not sure that I'm not really sure that, um, that the way that I've picked up Wittgenstein's thinking on these topics contributes. Uh, it certainly doesn't contribute directly to um, ethical thinking uh, about how, say, our treatment of of other animals or the environment. But um, but I think there's a relevant there there is something relevant because. Uh, cultivating a sense or at least not losing the sense that we might ordinarily spontaneously have um, that sense of wonder and awe at the glories of nature and sometimes um, awe and wonder at um, as I've said the um, uh, the, the frightening and perhaps the the sublime and the uh, and the the terrible sides of nature as well the the immense destructive power of nature I think that that's something that is very valuable for us to to hold on to and to recognise that it gets expressed in many ways including through our or it can be expressed through religious forms of of life and because it's so something that's so I suppose. Um, so existentially pressing upon us the uh, the potential destructive power of nature and uh, i suppose the very fact that we ourselves suffer and die uh, as being uh, part of that that destructive power um to just find ways of giving expression to that in a in our lives is is extremely important and um and can be a, a great antidote to uh, to egotism um when one recognizes one's Finitude and one's uh, the smallness of one's life in in relation to uh, the universe uh, and the world as a whole, and maybe that you know that can be a source for um, ethical engagement with um, with nature and the world. Uh, certainly, a, a source of, of profound uh, respect for uh, the power of nature and for for other animals as well. Fantastic. That's a that's a great note to finish on. I couldn't agree with you more. I share many of those same thoughts and uh, uh, conclusions. Mm. So great, Mick. It's um, it's been good to talk to you, and I, I appreciate you giving up so much of your time to uh, speak to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. No, not at all. It's been been an immense pleasure. I'm 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 always very pleased to to be able to explore these uh, these uh, questions with with uh, with people, and so I very much appreciate your questions. Great.
Great. Okay, well, look, just a final thing. Where can uh, folks find your work? Have you got a website or a, a central location for your writing? Um, I, I don't have a, a personal website. I, I have there, there are various websites that feature um, information about me and my, my work. So um, so I'm, I'm at the University of Leeds um, in the UK, and the University of Leeds has a, a website, and I have a web profile uh, as part of that website. Um, my, my name is fairly unusual, Mikel Burr. So um, if, if, if somebody wants to find out about me and my work, they can just type in um, M-I-K-E-L-B-U-R-L-E-Y and it will probably bring up um, a variety of different websites or perhaps some of my uh, articles. But um, the, so the main websites to go to are the uh, my web profile on the University of Leeds and also there's a um, I, I have a web uh, web page on academia.com. Edu, um, and that will that's likely to come up if, you, if somebody just does a general search under my my name. And there's a, a, a lot of my articles are readily available for for download, uh, free from that that website. Fantastic. Okay, so happy New Year, and all the best uh, for your future work and uh, research. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to you and to, and to all the all the listeners.
Tanya